You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. A Sports Fix Tuesday. Tommy by phone. I'm in studio. Aaron continues to work from home. Uh, Sorry about yesterday. Um, Intended to do a show. Had a uh, personal matter. Had to take care of. Back today with Tommy by my side. Figuratively. Um, as we uh, as we approach another day with a lot of a lot of news and stories and opinion, but not many sports results to talk about. Nope. And maybe nope. maybe not for a long time. I, I want to do um, start off by mentioning the following to you. I got a text from a friend of mine who said, "Are you following this whole thing on Twitter?" And it was. I'm not even going to get into what the issue was because it's actually completely immaterial to this. And I said, no, I'm not. I actually really, I've been on Twitter for one reason for a while now, and that is to promote show stuff. And, right. And, and I have not, and I went back just to make sure that I was right about that because I'm like, I don't think I have responded. I have not been on Twitter you know I don't do a lot of reading notifications anyway. I, I do that occasionally, and I'll respond to like four or five that I see real quickly to interact with those that would like to interact with me. But over the last you know three weeks, two weeks, or I, I just have felt like, and I mentioned this on the podcast, I think on Friday, um, when I said I'm just not going to get into a Twitter battle with anybody. I... I I have a three-hour radio show, and I do a daily podcast, and twice a week I do it with you, and so that just gives me a longer-form medium to talk about what I want to talk about, the issues that are that are of interest to us, and you know, put it in context and put the right tone to it and use the correct number of words and not be limited to you know what's going on on Twitter and and on social media in particular which to me a couple of weeks ago just seemed like an insane asylum and i just thought it was too much of a time suck so i have literally not been engaged on social media for a while now until tommy until last night when i got a facebook friend request i haven't been on facebook in forever but I got a Facebook friend request. You know how they pop up in your email. Somebody, oh, yeah. you yeah. know, and, and I appreciate and hopefully I, most of you know that I'm just not active on Facebook. I'm not. And in recent weeks, I haven't really been active on Twitter other than to tweet out an upcoming segment or a guest or to retweet, you know, uh, an hour on the show that I did or to tell you here's something interesting from the podcast. It's been all show promotional stuff. Last night, I noticed on, you know, I get them through email, Facebook friend requests, that I got a Facebook friend request from Michael Graham. And I'm like, I wonder if that's the Georgetown Michael Graham. And it is. It's the Georgetown Michael Graham. I don't know why that made me smile and happy. But because, I mean, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of friend requests or a lot of people that you find interesting have followed you on Twitter over the years. But I don't know why, like, I'm reading through all of these Facebook friend requests. And usually what I'll do is, like, once every couple months I'll go on there and just confirm all the friends. 
Because I don't want people to think that I'm... I, they, they should know that I'm not active on Facebook, which is why they don't get an immediate confirmation of it. But I don't know why that made me smile and made me pleased, but I just thought, wow, a Georgetown guy in the height of the 80s, a national champion... By the way, if I recall, too, a two-time lottery winner, right? Do you remember those stories? About Michael Graham? I don't Graham. know. I, I remember he was a lottery winner, yeah. I think he won big prizes in the lottery two different times. I think that's true. But anyway, um, I will, when I get on Facebook next time, Michael, um, lefty, just imposing figure, as much as I couldn't stand Georgetown because I was a Maryland fan, I've mentioned this many times in the past, I loved the way they played. And I loved the way Coach Thompson coach them I always love that style of play but um anyway I'm, I've not for those of you wondering why I haven't responded you on uh, responded on Twitter if you are wondering you're probably not I just haven't been on it really and I'm very happy that Michael Graham asked me to be his friend on Facebook well here's the deal I've gotten to know Michael a little bit over the years really uh Yes, he's been a friend of mine on Facebook. Well, then that's why he and friended for, me, I'm sure. For a long, no, I, I think he used to listen to our show. Okay. And he really liked it. Uh, and I actually had him as a guest on my podcast, Cigars and Curveballs, for an episode. Interesting. So he'd be a great guest, you know, for your show. Oh, I, was, he, was he good on the podcast that you did? Yes. Really? Yes. yes. I'm writing yes. that down right now. Yeah, and, and all you got to do is uh, accept him on Facebook and send him a Facebook message. Right. I can about do, coming on the show. I can do that. I can do that, or I yeah. can get his number from CJ and call him or text him. He's, do, he's done some podcast work on his own and, and, and things like that. So, no, he's very good. And, and uh, I, I, I'm not saying we're, we're good friends, but I know him a little, and I really like interacting with him. Here's a story um, real quickly. In um, in 2013, he won a $1 million prize on Powerball through the D.C. lottery. I believe, now I'd have to find this, I think he won another big prize. I remember talking about that at some point, that it was his second uh, big lottery um, result. Uh, But I, I, I could be wrong. Former Georgetown story. You, this one million dollar prize keeps popping up. I, I don't see the Facebook, second one, Facebook. but maybe it happened. For your own product, you should be more active on Facebook with your Facebook page. Yeah, I know. I know you've you've suggested that to me many times. Well, I'm not the only one who suggested it. I mean, the Washington Post has tried to drill it into their reporters mm-hmm. about the importance of Facebook. Right. You know, so it's not just little old me doing it i'm just getting sick of social media is that an age thing or or not i i don't i find it so i find that you can just be so easily misinterpreted and it then becomes a time suck as you try to explain in 280 characters or 280 characters times three different you know responses on twitter you know, uh, rather than, you know, I much prefer taking calls, as you know. Then you have a conversation. I don't feel like social media that there's a real conversation there. No, there's not. But I have to admit, I enjoy the fight sometimes. 
No, I, I know I get, that. I know you enjoy I, I it. Get, I get a kick out of the fight sometimes. I, know, would, I would rather be doing something else. Okay. I would just seriously. I, because I recall many sports arguments with a couple of different people over the years where I'd be sitting there and it'd be like an hour later and I would look at it and I'd be like, I've responded six times and he's responded seven and he still doesn't get what I'm trying to say. And maybe it's that I'm not getting what he's trying to say. And I'd be like, I just wasted 45 minutes to an hour. I could have been doing something else. Well, what what you see, what you got to do is you have to strike the knockout blow early. So there's so they don't feel compelled to basically come back. Well, I've seen some of your, you know, knockout punches and some of them are really good and some of them I believe you believe are knockout punches and you're in your own mind and then you just stop and you move on to the next one because you're always going to believe that your response is a knockout blow. Not always. Not always. I, I posted something very nice on Twitter what? and Facebook and Instagram about a half hour ago. What did you, what I did was, you post? I, I was on my daily walk yesterday afternoon, mm-hmm. and somebody had written in, in sidewalk chalk on the sidewalk the big letters, you know, the, the word smile mm-hmm. in big letters. So I took a picture Is of it. Is that an acronym for something that well, we should know I, about? <laughs> I posted it on Twitter, and I said, what is this, propaganda? <laughs> uh, see, that's funny. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. What are you guys doing? Keep this, <laughs> keep this propaganda off my sidewalk. If Smile. you're going to do it, print it out and post it, and then, then the rain will wash it away. <laughs> um, well, I guess rain would wash the chalk away, too. I don't know. Smile. Yeah. You know what? There should be more smiling going yes, on, but these are very true. serious times, too. Yes. So you don't want to smile flippantly. You know, let's get into interpreting smiles, because there are different but kinds of smiles. But here's the other thing, uh, and I'm not saying that you're in a different place, but you are, okay? I've got nothing to lose. You know? They, they can... They can hang. They can. They can stomp me to the ground, and it won't matter. What do I care? Well, I know you. You. You've got nothing to lose, and I. I mean, I usually don't think in those terms, but I would be lying if I said that the last few weeks have been delicate. You know, I think that the. Um, I think we're living through a very interesting time. You've, you know, we we've had this conversation, so we won't go into it in in great detail today. Right. But um, alternative views aren't, you know, being received very well by those that are and really people, adamant that their people, position is a hundred percent right. You know, that the entire mission statement is right. Oh, people are getting fired left and right for people for get that. Fired left and right. I'd prefer but, not to get fired. Well, you see, I'm not at that stage. I understand I'm at that stage. I'm 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 at the finish line, and there's nothing they can do to me. Yeah. So um, have at it, everybody. Anyway, I'm really excited that Michael Graham friended me or requested that I he be my friend on Facebook. But now my my feeling is after you, you know, said that you've got a relationship with him, is that he did it because he's a fan of yours. And oh, by the way, I just come along for the ride. And so he's like, yeah, this Sheehan guy that's always on with Lavero on this podcast. That's the radio show I used to listen to. Love well, Lavero. Well, I would have, 
I would have thought you would have gotten over that by now. Because <laughs> it happens so much. You know yeah. what? I, I just want you to smile today. I want you to smile. I want you to be happy. I don't want it to be, um, you know, an embarrassed smile. I'm going through the list of smiles right now. You want to hear the list of smiles? According to Healthline.com, <laughs> there are 10 types of smiles. There is the reward smile. Um, the reward smiles like a parent with a kid when they do something right, smiling, saying, that's what I'm talking, or with your pet. I've been doing that a lot with my puppy. The reward smile and my tone of being approving. There's the, the affirmative smile, which to me is somewhat the same as the reward smile. There's the dominant smile, like, hey, yeah, I got it figured out. There's the lying smile. That's a deceitful smile, Tommy. There's the wistful smile. There's the polite smile, which I do to you a lot. There's a lot of polite smiling in your direction at a lot of things you say. There's the flirtatious smile. I haven't seen one of those in years. <laughs> There's the embarrassed smile. There's the Pan Am smile. The smile gets its name from the Pan Am flight attendants who were required to keep smiling even when customers and circumstances made them want to throw peanut packets across the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the plane's going down, but keep smiling. Um, you know, that's one thing I do yeah. uh, when I'm on a plane. Don't you do the same thing? When, when there's some turbulence or it's a little bit shaky, don't you, don't you immediately look, look at, at the, the flight attendants and see their reaction? I think if it's really bad, I do for sort of confirmation that all's going to be right. I can't remember yes. the last time I did that. Yes, I, but I mean, I do. I do. I look at them, and if I don't sense any panic in their face or any concern, then I say, well, we're fine. Yeah, until like then all of a sudden the phone rings and one of the flight attendants picks up the phone, and then there's a concerned look, and then you just close your eyes. Oh, God, yeah. What's the worst flight experience you've ever had? I've never had a real bad one. I've never, like, dropped, like, a thousand feet in the air like some people have. I've had some shaky flights. I remember flying from Boston to New York during the playoffs. I think it was in 2004. Uh, and that's a short flight from Logan to LaGuardia. And there were barf bags all over the place. Mm. I mean, it was so shaky and so windy. And that might have been the worst one. Also, I remember taking off from Dallas once during a thunderstorm uh, and just thinking, this is absolutely nuts. What are we doing here? Uh, and that was gripping the, the arm of the chair, really. Those are the only two. I've had very easy uh, flight uh, situations. I've never seen a fight. On, on, on a plane, you know, I watch all these videos of, of airplane fights. I've never seen anything close to one. Yeah, I think everybody, if you've flown enough, has been on a real rocky, turbulent flight, you know, that, you know, can be unnerving, um, definitely. I had a true terrifying experience on a flight. This was... 25 years ago, every bit of it, certainly 20 years ago. 20 years ago at this point would be 2000. No, it was somewhere in the mid, mid to late 90s, more likely than not. And I was on a flight from Portland, Oregon home, but it was going through Chicago, uh, United. Um, I think I told you that there was a stretch there in the mid 90s where I was in Portland, Oregon a lot. 
And I actually liked Portland, Oregon. And I loved Seattle, too. I loved the Pacific Northwest. I don't know that I would want to live in Seattle these days. But anyway, I was flying from Portland back home through Chicago. And on the Portland to Chicago stretch, um, there was uh, a an alarming, you know, couple of minutes, like more than a couple of minutes. It was probably, you know, five to ten minutes. The flight immediately dropped several thousand feet. Um, the oxygen wow. masks came down. Uh, the flight attendants were white as ghosts. They were frightened by the incident. And, you know, for a few minutes... I thought this is it. I definitely thought this was it. You know, the first thing is you you get the oxygen mask on. I think it's the only time I've ever had the oxygen masks drop during a flight was this particular fight flight. And Tommy, for like a 15, 10, 15 year period, I was flying close to 100,000 miles a year. Um, right. on, on United, like I had red carpet club treatment, the whole thing, you know, um, top member on, on United in particular and us air pretty close to it as well. It was not for radio. It was for a different business, but anyway, I, I, it was terrifying and the plane was basically going nose down. They, oh my God. They had lost, you know, basically the ability to keep the cabin pressurized correctly, so they had to get to an altitude that was safer. Now, after about five minutes, you could see that the flight attendants were calm, and they said, we're going to be okay, and you heard from a flight attendant saying, "Uh, the pilot will explain, but everything's fine, but that was it. Never another word. The flight landed, people got off the flight, the cabin, the, um, uh, the Cockpit, the cockpit doors were shut. They never opened up. None of the pilots came out. They never got onto the speaker to, to, to tell us what had happened. And I just and I remember asking the flight attendant, so what was it? She said, we needed to get uh, the, the, the cabin became depressurized, I guess. Um, we lost pressure in the cabin and we needed to get down to, you know, from 37,000 feet to 20,000 feet or whatever it was, or to 15,000 feet. But that was terrifying for every bit of like five minutes minimum. And maybe it was longer than that. But I, I remember trying to call the airline to say what happened on the flight I was in the, on the, there was no explanation from the pilot. There was no apology. There was nothing. I wasn't looking for an apology. I was just looking for like a, a real explanation. And the doors of the cockpit never opened up. They didn't want to talk to anybody about what happened. That was by far and away the most terrifying incident for me on a flight because there was really there was an unknown there for too long. Um, and then on another flight, I'll never forget flying into National. And it was, you know, runway 13, I think it is. It's the one that wraps around, you know, the Kennedy Center and what used to be the USA Today building. It's one of the more beautiful landings at any airport in the country, really, um, where you see D.C. If, if you come from the south, you don't see all the monuments. You don't see the beauty as much of Washington. But we landed and immediately went right back up into the air. Landed and then I had, I had, immediately I had took off again. I had a situation like that. Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people have, like that. Yeah, there was clearly a plane in the path or was approaching yeah. the path, and they had to get the plane yeah. back in the air or there would have been a disaster on the ground. Yeah, I did have one of those, but I never had anything as bad as what you described. 
Yeah, that was um, that was wild. I the, I do remember thinking, Jesus, do I want to get back onto another plane to get home? Like I wish it had happened Chicago to D.C., but I had to get right back onto another plane and fly home after that. I think I did. You the, know, I think I did the mathematical odds in my mind of, okay, this happened, but it hasn't happened in the previous, you know. Uh, 2,000 flights that I've been on, so I got another 2,000 flights before it happens again. You have to admit, there's nothing like being the top dog in the rewards program of an air, airline. Yep. Isn't it great? Oh, yeah. For, se- it's, for it's several so years, I, I was reaching those numbers. I was traveling four to five days a week um, for about eight, nine, ten years, and I... Um, and I had stat- I had status on Delta, U.S. Air, and United. Those were the three that I think I flew more than anything else. It's funny, in recent when years, I, was, I fly a lot of Southwest. Yeah, so do I now, too. When I was covering baseball, I was top of the line, U.S. Air. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and, you know, I'm flying first class all the time. You know, the, the times that they wouldn't have first class available, I, I'd be like, like crushed. <laughs> no, like, especially on a long flight. Coast. Yeah, but usually there was a first class available, and and I took between hotel points and uh, airline points. Oh, I took vacations. My family oh, yeah, we did the same four thing. Yeah, to Spain, uh, airfare all paid for four, and five days in uh, a five star hotel in Barcelona, all with points. Yeah, well, you know, not every company would allow you to keep those points, you know, but mine did, and it sounds like yours did, and we did a lot of vacations as well um, off of, uh, you know, uh, points for not only airlines, um, but, you know, when you're traveling and staying in hotels, credit cards, et cetera. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was – I'm so glad I don't and haven't had that lifestyle in a long time. One of the reasons – I ended up getting out of that and trying to get into broadcasting 16, 17 years ago, whatever it was, is I, you know, I had young children and I didn't want to be on the road three, four, five days a week. I hated that. I got to the point where I hated it, hated it, especially. Well, flying is so much more stressful now than it was then. Too. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, because because for, you know, let's just say if I had an 8 a.m. flight from Reagan, which was National Airport then, um, I could leave my house at 7.15 and be on the flight easily. <laughs> you know, because National's basically 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, 25 with traffic, but really 15 to 20 without it. And I would have time to park and get to the gate without with plenty of time. And now, and I can, I can remember, and I can remember the days where national, by the way, the flight. most convenient airport in town by well, I, far. I was in Columbia, so I used to fly in and out of BWI. Right. Uh, and the days where you get on a flight, and there'd be thirty people on the flight. You rarely, I rarely had a full flight. That's true when too. I, was I remember that. Baseball. Yes. You know now they're now they're all full. Well, not they're now. Sold. Yeah, well, be- not right before now, the pandemic, before yes. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, you're right about that. The glory, the glory days of, the, of traveling. The glory days of not having to worry about what somebody was carrying onto a plane. Um, yeah. And I can yeah, only imagine what right. was probably on a plane uh, back then. But, yeah, it was so easy. 
And, you know, D.C. is served, really, by three airports, Dulles, BWI, and Reagan National. You know, not every city has three, you know, big airports. Um, Obviously, it's because Baltimore and Washington are so close to one another. But Reagan has always been one of the most convenient in-and-out airports in the country. My experience. It's the easiest to get in, park, get to your gate. Now, in you know, since two thousand one, you know, there can be long um, security lines, but it, it just from car to gate was always so easy. It is. I always thought BWI was too. BWI is pretty easy. Dulles was always the worst yeah, until their recent, the you know. Um, you know, uh, shuttle and tram and whatever uh, upgrades. All right, um, let me read real quickly something about Roman, and then we'll get to a couple of sports slash social topics, I guess, for the day. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait nearly a month, 29 days on average. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connects you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or your computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com and use my promo code SHEAN, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. You'll get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com, promo code SHEAN, for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, let's get to um, some sports, COVID-19, social issues of the day, um, and get into it by talking about the major professional sports in this country, which seem to be um, in trouble right now. Uh, Baseball, uh, according to the commissioner, uh, says that there is a real risk uh, that this isn't going to happen. Um, this is, by the way, a week after he said the likelihood of the season starting is 100%. Uh, last night on this show that ESPN did called uh, Sports Returns or something like that. I didn't watch it. Return of Sports, I think it was. Um, they had a bunch of different people on. Goodell was on. Manford was on. Adam Silver was on. Manford said he's not confident that there's going to be a 2020 baseball season. Meantime, with the uh, with the NBA, while Adam Silver believes that a lot of these issues that were sort of initiated by Kyrie Irving over the weekend, where Kyrie Irving led a group of people saying, you know, right now is not the right time for us to be playing basketball. There are too many issues of importance, um, and we want to be a, a part of that. You know, he said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, this is not about, you know, athletes and entertainers during this period of time. This is about you know, uh, being focused on real issues like racial injustice, et cetera. Um, Then you had, uh, so you had the baseball situation, you had the Kyrie Irving-led group in the NBA threatening that, and then in the NFL, a bunch of Cowboys tested positive for coronavirus, a bunch of Texans 
tested positive for coronavirus. Zeke Elliott um, uh, tested positive for coronavirus. Apparently he's doing well, according to his agent. Um, And so, you know, the question comes up again, not that it's new, and that is, are we going to get live sports, professional sports, you know, the sports that, that can't socially distance? Baseball can't socially distance, really. Basketball and football definitely can't. Are we going to get these sports or not? What do you say? What's your reaction to all of this from over the weekend? Well, you know, uh, I've been very skeptical of how they're going to pull this off all along. I mean, I've said that they can argue about money and logistics all they want, but I just think just as big an issue is, is how are they going to implement health and safety standards realistically and still be able to compete in these games. I don't understand how they're going to do it. I mean, that's just one of the reasons. You know, it's interesting. Kyrie Irving, I'm sure, you know, I'm not questioning his sincerity about some of the issues. I'm sure that there's uh, a a lot of uh, uh, athletes right now who are thinking this might not be a good time to start playing games, given the severity of the protests that are going on in the country. But I'll bet you there's some athletes that are sitting there thinking, some NBA players are sitting there thinking, three months locked in Disney World? Where are my road friends? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. This is a Where big... are my road friends? You know what I mean by road yeah, friends. Of course. Of course. Okay. There are road friends in every city they go to. Yes. Yes. And they're very friendly. And and, and, and many you know, of, and many of them very pleasant to look at, but right, but in, in, yeah, in and the ma- world, and many many mouths is going to get awfully tired. <laughs> but but you know? in the world they're living in right now, there are no road friends. Yeah, so that's true. So that they're not looking to to go to. That's true. I mean, I've wondered that 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 is a whole other dynamic. Oh, that yeah. I don't think anyone has written about well, is 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 the is, certain is industries that have been it. impacted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, because, Tommy, I saw last week or the week before when Vegas reopened, all these people, no masks, uh, you know, casinos going crazy, thriving. And then I thought about the other part of Vegas, what's going on at some of those favorite places, you know, yeah. because there's not a lot of social distancing typically at the Rhino. No, no, there's not. So, so, yeah. so I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I've been very skeptical all along of, of the reality of pulling this off. I've said that they got to try. They have to figure out a way to try. But until they do it, they don't know if it'll work. And I just don't think it's going to work. This is why I say all the sports that start will not finish their season. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, what you've been claiming and what you've been, you know, thinking will be the issue isn't really what's being reported here. It's a little bit uh, a part of it. I'm not suggesting that it's been completely excluded, which is the fear of COVID-19 and whether or not these leagues have have properly accounted for it from a safety standpoint. In baseball, it's primarily about the economics. Um, in basketball, it appears to be that this group led by Kyrie Irving um, is – feels like it would be too trivial to play NBA basketball while, you know, so many are protesting for something so much more serious. Um, in football, we don't even know where they are right now. Uh, right. So 
that we're, we're so far away from that right now. But I do agree with you, and I've said this before on the podcast, that um, I really think that the whole notion that that some of the some of the reality of being essentially quarantined in one city for like a minimum of two months and maybe as many as four months just started to hit them as they got closer in the, in the NBA to a return. And it's like, what you mean? Like for a team like Washington, we probably won't make the playoffs, but I got to go there for two weeks of training and then another two weeks of the game. And then another two weeks before I, you know, can leave all of a sudden I've been there for 35 days in one place like what am I going to do? And 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 the, the 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 real life of I don't you know it's one thing for me to go on a, a West Coast swing for ten days, it's quite another to be away from my young family, maybe a wife and young kids for for some of these players, for a minimum of a month, if not three to four months, and not just be away from them, them being away from you, sure, during the virus, right? Well, we have yeah. all a little bit more scared. Whether they should be or not, I believe that baseball is going to play. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, Rob Manfred. I, Tommy, you you could tell me whether or not you think he's doing a good job or a bad job during all this. He's a terrible commissioner. There is too much. I want you to to elaborate on that in a, in a moment. There is too much money at stake in all in both of these situations for. The NBA not to resume and for Major League Baseball not to start. I just think it will get done. It may be that they, you know, they play 48 games or 50 games and get to a postseason where the money's ridiculous, you know, where the revenue's, you know, ridiculous. But I do think that the NBA is going to restart and finish. Now, I don't know if they'll finish because of the, you know, the unpredictability of COVID 19. And how that will play out, I, no one can predict that right now. But I, despite what Manfred said, I would wager heavily that baseball has a season that gets to a postseason, or has the intention of getting to a postseason. Why is he such a terrible commissioner? Well, one thing he has I mean, look, at, I mean, he took over for Bud Selig, and Bud Selig, I think, was a better commissioner than people give him credit for, but he came across as very, not very dynamic, not a very strong leader. And Rob Manfred's a lawyer who's cut from pretty much the same mold. You know, he, he was, a, he was a, a baseball lawyer for all these years, and he, he acts like a lawyer. And look, the commissioner works for the owners, you know, but the commissioner is also supposed to be the leader of the industry in terms of the public face that, that people can believe in. And, uh, you know, I mean, Adam Silver, I think Adam Silver is the prototype right now for uh, a, a commissioner that I think most people have confidence and faith in, you know. And, and he's not a particularly dynamic-looking person, but his, he's, he's been very decisive, and I think he, he's been t- intelligent. Uh, Goodell has been a, uh, a disaster, except for the owners who... He protects them, and, and they make money. And I, Manfred, I just think, is overmatched. Now, the union has got the same problem. Tony Clark, yeah. a former baseball player, overmatched. I mean, shouldn't be in the job. I had one general manager tell me once that uh, of all the players that he had, the guy he would have le- that played for him, the guy he would have least expected 
to run the a union would be Tony Clark. So, I mean, you've got a situation where you've got poor leadership on both sides. The, um, the, the latest, you know, thoughts from Manfred said that basically the Players Association ended good faith negotiations. So he's putting it on the players. The players are, have responded with, just tell us when and where and we'll be there. Now, um, there isn't an agreement yet with the union on the health and safety protocols. Um, I, I really wonder whether or not they can get to an agreement on this stuff. This is the thing that I've mentioned to you. I don't know how you can put um, certain you know policies in place when you don't know what the guidelines are going to be yes. when you get there. This is the problem. Yes, like, who's baseball to say this is how it will be handled if we have more than three people test positive? This is how it will be handled if there is an outbreak. This is you know yes. we, they don't like our health people don't even know what the answers to those questions I are know. right now. I mean, this is why. I mean, people say it's about the money. Well, there's no point. Well, it is about the money too. But there, but there's no point in negotiating the second part until you get past the first part. Well, which, what do okay? you? Pers- what What is your first part? The health. Well, the first part is the money. Oh yeah. So once you say, once you say, okay, we're going to all agree to play. Now, how are we going to do it? And that, I think, is going to be uh, more challenging than the money. But there has to be some common sense applied here. Like if you're the the Players Association and you're the owner saying, look, we want to put certain things in here. We're going to put some things down like the amount of testing that's going to be available, how we're going to test, what the requirements from players are going to be. We have to test everybody. We can't let people knowingly go out you know, and play a game with, you know, a, a 101 temperature and and testing positive for COVID-19. We can't allow that to happen. So we can plan for testing, but we can't plan for, you know, an outbreak or a serious sickness or, you know, we don't know what the guidelines will be at that point. For all we know, old Dr. Fauci might say in, at the end of July, hey, if you test positive, however, you're asymptomatic, you can go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do. Or, you know, for all we know, it might be if you test positive, but you don't have these underlying conditions or your temperature doesn't reach this, who knows what it's going to be. So it's hard to really put anything into an agreement, into a negotiation when you don't know where to start from. And, uh, I mean, the latest projections are not encouraging. No, they're not. The so, and, and so, like, I mean, which, which I, think, I think September, October, October, November, October, November, particularly, I think are going to be really rough months. And all these sports are going to be playing, supposedly, in October and November. You know, one of the things, just as a complete digression, but it's it's associated, colleges that have committed to opening up in the fall, which my youngest son who goes to Penn State, he got the notice yesterday or the day before that Penn State would be open in the fall for students to be back physically on campus and to take classes. Um, there seems to be a feeling that when that there will be a next step to this, which will be when they go home for fall break or Thanksgiving break, that the rest of the semester after that point will be done online because of the expectation of changing weather could mean, 
you know, an increase in cases. So, well, you know, I never understood why they make kids come back after the uh, Thanksgiving break. <laughs> I mean, they're only usually back for like two weeks, a week or two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, two to three weeks. You know, depending so, on when Thanksgiving. So, is, I, yeah. I never quite understood why that, why they do that in the first place. You know, I teach at Georgetown. I don't know if I'm going to be doing it online yet or actually being asked to go in to classrooms this fall. So uh, George, I haven't heard George, yet. Georgetown hasn't made the decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, no. You know, back to the NBA here for a moment. I, I, I've, tr- I've listened here um, over the last 24 hours or certainly read the, di- the different opinions. You know, Kyrie Irving apparently had 80 people on this initial call on Friday and then yesterday had half that many sort of uh, siding with his position, which is basketball's trivial compared to the important stuff. It's the important stuff that we need to be focused on is, you know, primarily African-American men um, in a majority African-American business, uh, the NBA. But the the opposing um, view is that this is exactly the platform that these players can use to bring even more attention, which makes a lot of sense to me. You know, pl- playing the games for the purposes of creating a diversion during these very serious times can be viewed cynically if you want, and I understand that. You know, oh, you, you, the people just need their diversion from all these, you know, issues of 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 social change and 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 r- trying to, to to change racial, you know, create more racial equality, etc. But at the same time, if the goal is to bring more attention to this issue, to bring more people, you know, under the tent, so to speak, well, playing games and having that forum and having that platform would be the right way to do it, I would think. Uh, I, I can see both sides. I think that it does offer them a platform to be able to get their message out, although I got in trouble for actually suggesting that athletes might want to talk to reporters when they have a chance to uh, about this issue. Uh, who am I to say when they should be able to talk to reporters? But I understand Stay in your too, lane. Yeah. I understand, too, that the uh, – the feeling right now of, you know, playing basketball when, when there, there's seemingly lives at stake, I understand the feeling, but I agree with you. I think that if, if, if it were me, I'd feel like I can do more from the pulpit of playing than from being on the sideline. And let's face it, and other people have said this too, this is no surprise. If LeBron says they're playing, they're playing. <laughs> See, there, there's another part of this, too, and this is where, um, you know, they have a responsibility. They have a commitment, you know, that they haven't finished yet for a lot of reasons. There is a lot of lives and livelihoods at stake with completing this season. It's not just the players and the owners that benefit from a return to the NBA. There are thousands of employees you know, with NBA teams, within the league, within businesses that support the NBA, um, sponsors that, that support the NBA. Obviously, you don't have live, you know, arena uh, employees. But all of these sports create, you know, an incredible number of jobs um, that go far beyond the highest paying jobs. And those people have been out of work. They've either been furloughed or they've been laid off completely. And, you know, you have... 
it would be one thing to think selfishly, which is, you know, there's a lot at stake here. If you don't, you know, if if you're unable to generate that billion dollars plus in revenue because you don't go back and play, uh, you know, that's a lot of revenue loss that puts a lot of the league and maybe some of the teams into a very difficult financial position. I'll never forget this, Tommy, and I mentioned this, I think, on the radio show last week. When you and I had Ted Leonsis on, it's 10 years ago now. It's a different NBA, I understand that, or it's some eight years ago, whatever it was. It's a different NBA. But I remember him saying specifically that a lot of NBA teams don't make money. You know, they have to get to the playoffs and have a couple of home games just to to threaten the break-even mark. Now, the league's different now, but still, there are a lot of teams that aren't year in and year out wildly profitable. You know, it would be one thing uh, to to uh, acknowledge that the loss of one point you know three billion or whatever it is in NBA revenue is money out of the players' pockets, and Kyrie Irving can say there are more important things. But a lot of lots of that money goes to a lot of people that don't make anywhere near that amount of money and have been out of work for several months. And so there there's that piece of it too. There is the you know, it's better for everybody in this country, regardless of your beliefs, and most of us believe on the big issues, that we get this country back to a better place economically and get more people back to work. And the NBA going back to play, even if it's imperfect, is going to be better for the economy than it not playing. And again, I think what, what goes what hand happens, in hand with that is happens, the platform they have. What happens if they if they can't finish the season? Then what happens? Well, if they don't make an attempt to finish the season and you leave that much money on the table, I don't know what happens. It's not good. You know, the NFL can absorb that kind of a loss. You know, there aren't a lot of sports leagues. I mean, the XFL missed two weeks and they were, they were out of business with a guy that was willing to throw a half billion dollars at it. You know, to think that these that every team and every owner – on a, a pure profit and loss uh, basis is flushed with cash because of these leagues isn't necessarily true. They, these are very expensive sports to run. You know, there are thin well, margins I, I of profit a, with a lot of these teams. I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago pointing out that what you're going to start seeing is a lot of minority uh, ownerships being brought in to some of these teams, uh, teams that are going to look for cash, an infusion of cash, and are going to start selling minority ownership to outside investors. Uh, one of the things Ted did that was smart was a few years back, he sold 20% of Monumental Sports to Steve Jobs' widow, Lorraine Powell Jobs, I think that's her name. Yeah. Uh, and that brought in $500 million for, for, to Monumental Sports. You're going to see a lot more teams do that because they're going to need an infusion of cash. Well, I don't know if they're going to need an infusion of cash or not. It would be really nice if these teams, you know, hopefully they don't have to raise money. You want the health of these sports leagues to continue. But if they do have to raise capital to um, to offset the loss of a lost season. It would be great to have more minority investors and more minority owners uh, in these sports leagues. I think everybody would be in favor of that. Now, what would be interesting... But I don't mean minority. I mean, 
I mean, minority, the, the smaller and better. Oh, you're talking about actual no. uh, f- the stake, yeah. you know, equity hold. Yeah. Um, yeah the, I thought I, you were talking I, I about. A lot of these, yeah. You know, well, so. You know, I think these teams are, are, are going to have to, a lot of these teams, particularly the NBA and maybe baseball, are going to have to open up, open up their shares to outside investors to, to get some money. I don't know what the economics are, and every team probably different, um, you know, in terms of their financial situation. But if a team does have to raise capital to offset a loss, what would be really interesting is to see how that that team is valued after not playing a season. To see, well, I know the Spurs. The Spurs have 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 uh, brought in sold a share to a minority investor. Mm-hmm. Was the latest team? Yeah, it just I, I would yeah. I would expect a, a year of not making a billion plus dollars if that's the way it plays it plays out will impact yeah. valuations, which means it'll be a better time to be an investor um, as long as they're going to continue to play. I mean, you know, getting involved in these sports right now, there's some risk to it. I'm not suggesting sports are going to end, but the revenue generation from these sports could change. That whole that that whole uh, structure could change. I mean, what if you go two years without spectators? What if the games aren't as enjoyable and the TV ratings drop, and therefore the networks have to pay less? There's a lot that you know uh, we're going to figure out here. That is, you know, it, th- put it this way: if you're raising money for an NBA team right now, in that prospectus, the risk section where you list the risks associated with the business is about fifty pages longer today than it was five months ago. Yes. Yes, it is. On the other hand, these are small clubs and and everybody, you know, not many people get a chance to, to join up with them. And for a lot of guys, a minority ownership is opens the door for them uh, to maybe purchase a, a full ownership of another team in the league down the line. Uh, I think uh, David, uh, who's the guy who just bought, who bought the Panthers from Jerry Richardson? Um, yeah, yeah, I know, uh, I know who you're talking about. Well, uh, he was a minority investor in the Steelers, right? You know, so that this opens the door a lot. Of, so even though there's still a lot of risk, people with money, once the door opens to this private these private clubs for them to get in, I think they're still going to jump through it. In 2017, I just found this article. 14 NBA teams lost money in 2017. One of those uh, was the Wizards. The So that's 14 of what? 30 teams lost money three years ago. Now, does that mean that a team is going to file bankruptcy or a team is going to go out of business? No, because the ownership groups... You know, like you said, it's a small club, and it's a small club of very wealthy guys that are willing to write the check to offset the losses to keep the team. And by the way, the valuations of those teams have been going up, even though, you know, on an annual basis, they might be losing money. I know that the two don't seem, uh, they, they seem at odds with each other, but that's just the way it works because basically, you know, your franchise is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And, you know, it's a small club, like Tommy said. But here's where. I'd like to know what the current situation is. When Adam Silver and the 30 owners are talking about giving up potentially or you know having to answer a Kyrie Irving with 39 other players about not playing, are they able to sit down and say, do you know that three years ago we could offset 
the small losses that 14 teams had. But now all 30 teams are going to have a loss, and 14 of them are going to have major losses, and now we may be at risk at losing to losing a few teams in the process. I wonder if that's a possibility. And if it is... I'll bet it's a fear. I'll bet it's disgust. And I, but, but whether or not they could get that across to players who always believe that they're being lied to, who always believe that these billionaire owners are nowhere near close to losing their teams. I'll tell you what they will be close to. They'll be close to basically tearing up the current CBA and paying the players a lot less for the for the next few years until they get back to you know uh, some some level of footing that they had pr- pr- previous to this period. There's a that whole thing would be really really interesting. I don't know where if anybody's written in great detail. I was searching it here um, as you were talking to see whether or not teams could potentially be in trouble of going out of business if players don't go go back and play because I believe the TV money. You know, for the regular season in the playoffs, like there's a that basically like a billion dollars plus or minus a couple of hundred thousand is at stake here. A couple of hundred million, excuse me, is at stake here. Well, so, you know, I mean, and this may this may go uh, this may be a difficult pill for management to swallow, but the one way to gain the trust of the players that you are hurting, if you are hurting, is to open up your books. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. What typically see what typically happens when you ask people to open up their books is that they can be complete. You have you have to sit down almost in a classroom and explain. Look, here's this business. This other stuff is separate businesses that I have that contribute to my wealth. But this business as a standalone needs this much in revenue to offset this much in cost to create a profit margin that we're comfortable with. Or even just to break even. Three years ago, 14 teams willing to you know move forward losing money. I, I, I always think that, that, that I'm not saying that that's why they aren't you know opening up their books, but I think even when they do, it's tough to explain. I'm reading something right here that was well, that's on the that's on the union to then explain it. Yeah, that's if the, the NBA season is that. canceled, um, the ticket revenue alone is a five hundred million dollar loss. Now, spread that, over how many teams? Uh, th- over thirty teams, but but okay. but by the way, ticket revenue is going to be lost anyway. That money is going to be lost, which makes the TV revenue that they're still owed so much more critical. They've yeah. got to get that TV money because they're not getting the gate receipts, and the NBA player has already been paid the significant uh, majority of their twenty nineteen twenty twenty salary because they've played eighty four yeah. eighty five games. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've been spending time here talking about it. It would be great to really know what the true economics of the NBA are. I can just tell you, I think with a high level of confidence that over a billion dollars will be lost if the NBA doesn't come back. A lot of people whose jobs have already been furloughed or lost will never get them back. And there will be at least a few teams in true dire trouble. That's my guess. That, that that's uh, to me an educated guess as to what the I fallout. I think that's a reasonable. I think that's a reasonable guess. 
And at the same time, Kyrie Irving and the 39 other players, which by the way includes some WNBA players. And again, I read this morning that the conference call that he initiated on Friday was close to 100 participants, and the one that happened yesterday was closer to 40 participants. Well, what? what? What happened to the rest of them? Did they fall off the end of the earth? Well, maybe they they understood what we've talked about is the economic damage that would come from it. And oh, by the way, this is a pretty good platform to bring attention and in, in to help affect, you know, change. Um, this incredible platform that they'll have. By the way, Tommy, maybe even a bigger platform than they would have had because there's so much pent up demand for live sports. They will be, be yeah. these games will be played where they'll be looking for additional content. You know, with interviews with players in game, after game. Um, I don't know. Uh, seems to me to be a little bit short sighted, and at the same time, like you said, I mean. I do understand right now for everybody and everybody in the world has come to grips with what's really important in you know in sports which we've lived in and been a part of for so long are really frivolous compared to these important issues and not that we didn't know that before I'm not suggesting that it just became obvious that you know sports aren't as important as real world things but i think when you you live through what we've left lived through the last 4 months you realize the insignificance and how inconsequential they are compared to other things like making sure you're healthy enough to live yes well that's the, that's always been the attraction of sports is the emotional investment is fun because you're not really invested in anything important you know yeah, yeah. That, that's part of the but, joy. But of yet we've we've taken you, them you so can seriously. You die with your team, uh, and wake up the next day and say, "Hey, I'm still healthy. No big deal." Yet you know, people are so emotionally invested in all of them, and I think that's the part. Like you're going to still be into sports, but maybe for a short period of time, you won't be as emotionally invested in them. I think it all depends on your. Um, on your life perspective and where you are in your life too. I mean, you know, a lot of people have lost people that they've loved, in, yeah. you know, over the last four months, a lot of people have lived in legitimate fear. You know, early on, I remember a lot of you criticized the interview. Uh, you criticized Adam Schefter who came on radio and you thought many of you thought was just way too hyperbolic and way too fearful. And, you know, he had really uh, sounded the alarm bell that the NFL was making a big mistake moving forward with the draft and free agency. And and I mentioned, I'm like, I, I, I don't agree with Adam. I think it's important that the NFL move forward with these things. I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, his perspective was much different than mine. He was at ground zero living in New York where everybody was getting it and a lot of people were dying from it and there was a lot of unknown about it in March and April. You know, we didn't have that in D.C. We didn't have that in most areas of the country. There are a lot of areas in this country where a lot of you have have not heard or uh, or don't know one person that's tested positive or gotten COVID-19. In New York, my friends that live in New York and Connecticut and family members in New Jersey, they all know many people who have gotten it. 
And several of those people know people that have gotten either seriously ill or died from it. We didn't live through that or haven't lived through that experience that he lived through being, you know, there. Yes, I Um, agree. All right, guys, quick word about Hawthorne.co. Hawthorne with an E.co, not .com. If smelling good is important to you, Hawthorne smells really good. Getting Hawthorne cologne is so easy. You're probably wearing a cologne, if you wear a cologne currently, that you got many years ago. Maybe from your wife you've never changed. Maybe it was an old girlfriend. And that cologne may not work for you. If you don't wear cologne and you want to wear cologne, Hawthorne.co is the place to go. It starts with a very simple online quiz where they learn a little bit about your preferences, about your body type, about the kind of things you like and you don't like. And then they give you a couple of suggestions. It's a free, non-identifying online quiz. And you can take it for yourself if you want to find out the colognes that are good for you. Or with Father's Day coming up, you can actually take that quick quiz for your father. And that will give you suggestions for your father so you can get a Father's Day gift. It's a very easy online quiz to take. It will identify the colognes that work for you. So take a quick two-minute quiz at Hawthorne.co. Hawthorne will tell you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work maybe, one for play. Totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns on any product you get. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co. Use my promo code for this one. It's Kevin DC, K-E-V-I-N-D-C, and you'll get 10% percent off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co. Use my promo code Kevin DC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. All right. You wanted to talk about the 30 for 30 on McGuire and Sosa long gone summer. Uh, it's called, I actually watched half of it last night and then fell asleep. Uh, I'll watch the other half of it. If you tell me it's worth it to watch the other half of it today. Um, I had Bob Carpenter on the show. He was on the call for a lot of those games as the voice of the Cardinals in 1998. Um, this was obviously, you know, a big deal for you, you know, as a Hall of Fame voter, as a baseball writer during this time. What do you want to say about it? Did you like it, first well, of all? Well, I, no, I didn't like it. And uh, what was disturbing about it is that. Uh, we don't seem to have learned nothing from, you know, more than 20 years later of one of the biggest frauds per- perpetrated on the American sports public. Not only haven't we haven't learned anything, we seem to be blissfully ignorant of it. <laughs> We're happy. I've heard this criticism, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, the summer of 98 does not happen without steroids. And Mark McGuire has admitted he's used steroids, and he used a lot of them. Four steroids, all kinds of steroids. Sosa has refused to admit it, but he tested positive in that 2003 testing program that was supposed to remain anonymous that was reported by the New York Times. Uh, neither of these guys are, are chasing Roger Maris's record without, without steroids. So the whole thing was based on a fraud. 
and so and so didn't so we we didn't learn that from this thirty for thirty in the first hour of it, which I watched. There was the you know the the discovery by a reporter in the locker room of you know creatine and andro whatever and McGuire's locker, and that you know basically people thought that they were just legal supplements. So you don't you, you're telling me that if if I go back and watch the second hour, I'm not going to get how terrible 1998 was was and what a big fraud it was. I'm not going to get that. It's almost like an addendum at the end. They address it. One thing, the uh, andro and creatine were legal substances. Then. I know they were. I mean, I'm not even I'm not even talking about that. I know they were legal. Yes. Uh, I mean, and and McGuire. I mean, when he talked about it, he says this quote: "There were no rules. There were no regulations." Now, heaven forbid, the filmmakers point out that for one. Steroids obtained illegally have been against the federal law since 1991. Right. So it, it was against federal law, for one thing. And as soon as that law was passed in 91, the commissioner of baseball, Faye Vincent, issued a memorandum to all the clubs declaring that steroids were banned from baseball. Okay. The issue, everyone always says, is testing. You know, here's what McGuire said. If there had been drug testing back then, none of this would have happened. Well, what kind of bullshit is that? In other words, if somebody had tried to catch me, I wouldn't have done this? I mean, that's ridiculous. And, and there's a lot of blame for, for, for the whole steroid error and, and the fraud that, that led to 98. But uh, the first place people should look is the union that represented McGuire, the Players Association, fought every attempt to institute stricter drug testing until their members got tired of being dragged before Congress uh, on Capitol Hill and asked the union for stricter testing themselves. You barely hear about the players' union role in this, in in the movie. And, look, I covered this thing. I I had a lot of fun covering this. I was with McGuire from home runs 55 through 62, and then again the last weekend of the season from 66 through 70. And uh, I went back and read some of my stuff, and I'm embarrassed like- for some of the crap. I'm embarrassed for what I wrote. Why? It was, it was, it was terrible. Because, because, I mean, I because you were enjoying it? Yeah, I bought into the whole thing. Well, I, 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 what, what should I, you somebody, have known? What should you have known? Well, I should have asked questions. Like what? I should have said, like, you know, I mean, you know, isn't this unusual to have these kind of numbers all of a sudden out of the blue? You know, uh, I mean, I've never standing next to McGuire so many times, and he seems so inflated that if you stuck a pin in him, he seemed like he would pop. You know, I mean, I, the stuff I wrote was garbage then, and I was a big part of it. You know, so, but... Uh, I've learned. Were you guys talking I've about learned. it in you know after? I mean, what was the conversation uh, like among reporters covering that era and, and those teams? Well, they were just, they they were just basking in the glow of being part of of, of this thing. I mean, you know. Well, I wasn't there skepticism? I, Did anybody was not, anybody skeptical? Not much at the time. But one thing, the reporter Steve Wilstein for AP. Who wrote the Andrew story? Yeah, right. Was so was so vilified for writing it that I wouldn't be surprised that that uh, that kept a lot of other people from suggesting it. And there were probably articles written 
that suggested performance-enhancing uh, substances and stuff, but they weren't by me. I bought into it hook, line, and sinker, but I don't buy into it anymore. And here's the other part of this myth, that it saved baseball somehow. This was a big part right. of the documentary. Right. That is safe baseball. Because okay. baseball was floundering since that strike year cost right. them season. Right. Well, and baseball attendance in 98 was 70 million fans. That's 7 million more than the previous year. That's a pretty impressive uh, jump. The only problem is baseball added two teams in 1998. <laughs> the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Right. What was their attendance? 6.1 million. Oh, wow. So it was basically so 900,000. A million. Yeah. A, a million jump. Where compared to the year before, from 96 to 97, attendance jumped 3 million fans. Yeah. So it was already so rebounding. Three. Right. And then let's look at television ratings. ESPN reported, ESPN said that their season, regular season ratings were up 21% that year more than any other season in the history of the network. Oh, yeah, of course they were. People were watching McGuire and Sosa. When they all they broadcast were Cardinals and Cubs games, particularly the second half of the season, of course everybody was watching this. But did it go beyond that? Did it go beyond St. Louis and Chicago? You know, uh, one measure I used for TV ratings, World Series ratings in 97, compared to 98. The rating for the Cleveland Indians and the Florida Marlins oh, in 97. Yeah, the Marlins, seven. a team that had existed for five years, was 16.7 compared to 14.1 between the Yankees and the Padres in 98, the Sosa McGuire year. So the well, what, the, the, but the, Cle- no, no. The, the Cleveland Marlins series went to a, a game seven, too, well, right? Because let me finish. The, okay. Not a fair comparison because the Yankees-Padres was a four-game sweep. That's right. So let's just compare game one ratings. 97 Indians-Marlins game one drew 24.5. Mm-hmm. Game one of the Yankees and the Padres. The Yankees coming back to the World Series after winning the 96 title drew a 16.6 rating. And this is just a couple weeks after the McGuire Sosa. Thing. Wait, well, real quickly, what were the two numbers again? Sorry. 24.5 and 97 for game one. Wow, 24.5 for, for Florida 16, Cleveland game one? 16.6 Interesting. for Yankees Padres in mm. game one. So there's no proof that this spread beyond St. Louis and Chicago in terms. Here's what happened to baseball. Here's what saved baseball. And I know you've heard this lots of times but people don't seem to uh, realize it. Over 20 years, from Camden Yards in 92 to Marlins Park in 2012, 20 new ballparks opened, drawing record crowds. Right. That's what saved baseball. 20 ballparks in 20 years. So that this, it was just, it was just, I just expected more intelligence and realization as to how we were fooled. And everybody wants to stick their head in the, in the ground. Everyone wants to be an ostrich. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a sickening uh, documentary. 
absolutely sickening. So we've had one great one, the last dance, and one terrible one, thirty for thirty, the long, yeah. uh, the, the 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 long summer, long this was, gone summer. This was this was propaganda. <laughs> That's what this was. Um. What kind of, uh, just real quickly, Sosa just always was very likable and, you know, a, a, a guy that seemed to be happy-go-lucky. McGuire always seemed uptight, and in the first hour of the episode I watched last night, uh, what was, I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, you can tell me that, but he did not like the attention. Maybe part of it was because of what he was doing to generate the results. Maybe he was uncomfortable with it. I think he was, unco- and that may be, maybe he knew secretly what he was doing. Of course he knew. But uh, I, I just think he was not comfortable with attention. I don't know Mark McGuire from Adam. The little contact, it's funny because earlier in the season, uh, when they were in Milwaukee about to go to Chicago, I went, to, uh, I went up there to see them play and, uh, in Milwaukee, the Cardinals. And I got to talk to McGuire for a long time. It was just him and me. This is before all the the uh, procession started. He was very relaxed, very nice guy, good to talk to then. But, yeah, I don't think he liked the attention. And, and that rightfully so, I think Sosa helped McGuire in terms of the attention. Sosa took some pressure off him because Sosa was so likable, and it wasn't all about McGuire when they were doing, like, the press conferences together right. in that weekend when they were both chasing uh, Roger Maris and they were both playing each other. So uh, I, I, I think that McGuire does, does not like the attention. I don't think he's a bad guy, but he's dishonest. He finally admitted in 2010 that he used performance-enhancing substances. And like I said, he, he, used, the, he used substances to help horses run, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, real quickly, tomorrow on the radio show, Joe Theismann will be the guest at 8 a.m. And if you miss Bob Carpenter, he weighed in on the uh, the documentary um, and was there calling uh, all of the McGuire games in St. Louis from today's did, show. Did Joe, did Joe send you a, a book? Uh, Joe hasn't sent me a book, but he said he would. So... Okay. Yeah. So we'll because I mean I, I'm sure he would. Oh yeah, he would send me one if I asked for it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I'll ask him for it. Do you do you need one? I mean you you can ask him for one. I could ask him for one if I want one. Yeah. I'm sure I will ask him for one. Okay. Very good. Are you going to read it? Well, I got a lot of books. I I I I've got to read. You know, uh, I'll read it, but it'll take a while to get to. Right. I'm sure. Uh, it will. You know, uh, actually. Actually, I'm reading right now the Jesse Doherty book, Buzzsaw, about the uh, national season, the no. uh, Nationals World Series uh, championship season. I recommend that to any Nats fan. It, it's a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, Jesse, I'm, Jesse, Jesse covered the team for the, for, the po- Post. for the Post. You know, what's really interesting is that, tell me if I'm wrong about this. If you are on the beat, and you cover a championship team, it's an absolute lock that you can write a book and 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 sell a book, right? Like there's too much pent-up demand for more and more about that team in the championship season. And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's typically the beat reporter of maybe the major newspaper in town that writes the book. 
That's a reasonable assumption, absolutely. So he's that right does, place, right does time. typically happen. Yes, yeah. <laughs> What's now, the book called? Now, uh, Buzzsaw. Now, I, you know, I'm three-quarters of the way through, and I'm a little disappointed because I haven't come across my name in it yet. And why would you assume you know? that you would? Well, I mean, I don't see how you can write about the Washington Nationals uh, and, and not include me in it somehow. But, you know, we're only, maybe, maybe it's somewhere in the end. You know, I looked in the acknowledgments, and it wasn't there either, which really disappointed me. But then I have, I have a review copy, so maybe a later edition has me listed in the acknowledgments. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, my guess is that you're not in it. That's my guess. <clears throat> but I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't even know the book was out. I actually think that that's a book that I would enjoy reading. So I may yeah, get it would. and read it. Um, and, then, and then have him on your show. Yeah, and then I'll have him on the show. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, last subject, real quickly, is this Mike Gundy situation at Oklahoma State. For those that don't know, Mike Gundy, the head coach at Oklahoma State since 2005, the man that won, you know, you know, that 12 years ago said, I'm a man. I'm 40. Um, he's now 52 years old. That's 12 years ago. Uh, Mike Gundy took a picture. Somebody took a picture of himself with his boys on a fishing trip with an OAN T-shirt. Now, real quickly, did you know what OAN was before reading this story? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Have you, oh, my God, yeah. Have you watched it OAN? May, it may spot it. it may, no, I haven't watched it. I, I, I've watched reporters from OAN. Uh, ask questions at press conferences, they make Fox News look like MSNBC. <laughs> um, so OAN, you want to talk about fake news? Yeah, I don't even capital F. I don't even capital A and a capital K. I don't even and a think capital E. I don't even know if OAN is on Comcast. I, I have Comcast cable. I don't even know that it's on there. I knew what OAN was. I've never watched it before. Never watched it. Um. Anyway, he had an OAN t-shirt on. Now, there's a little bit of, of background on this. Um, a few months back, he had a statement before we get to what happened yesterday. Uh, Mike Gundy did. He said, I was flipping through stations. I found one. I don't even know if anyone knows about this. It's called OAN. It's called One America News. And it was so refreshing. They just report the news. There's no commentary. There's no opinions. <laughs> there's no left. There's no right. They just reported the news. Um, anyway, uh, some people suggested that with that endorsement, OAN may have sent him, uh, some t-shirts and hats and everything else. And maybe he just had the t-shirt on and didn't know. Uh, but he's already, uh, admitted that he's a fan of what is, and Tommy's telling you through experience, I can't tell you cause I haven't watched it. Um, that is, it's a far right, uh, wing, uh, cable channel. So yesterday, um, he, tweeted out that picture and then Chuba Hubbard who is his best player uh, or certainly one of the best players he has on his team he was the leading rusher in the country last year rushed for over 2,000 yards as a sophomore he would be the returning MV uh, pre, uh, favorite to be the Heisman Trophy winner if Trevor Lawrence wasn't playing in college football Clemson um, but he's a big name in college football and he's he'll probably have a big year upcoming but he saw the picture of his head coach in the OAN t-shirt and he tweeted out I will not stand for this 
This is completely insensitive to everything going on on in society, and it's unacceptable. Um, and he then uh, said that um, he will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change, in capital letters, C-H-A-N-G-E. Well, by the time they got to the end of the day, Hubbard and Mike Gundy had spoken, and they put out a short, uh, you know, uh, collaborative video. Mike Gundy saying that he's going to work on things and has really, you know, tried to understand the issues. And Hubbard uh, apologizing actually for going public rather than going to his coach directly. I asked the following question, and Tommy, I took calls for an, over an hour on this and could have taken calls for another two hours on this. And the question simply put was, does, any, does anybody care about what your favorite coach's politics are? Now, let me just say this as it relates to Gundy. Um, how stupid is he? If he, if he oh, he's pretty. He's, he's a meathead, Kevin. He's pretty right? dense, no doubt. He's, he's um, a he is pretty dense. Tell you what, he can scheme up an offense. I can tell you that. Yes. Okay. Um, but he is a meathead. Yeah. Uh, he he is that. You know what's interesting? Actually, I just thought of this. Gundy, Urban Meyer, Mike Leach, some of the real innovative, out of the box, open minded football thinkers when it comes to offensive football. They're all super conservative. Meyer is, Leach is, Gundy is. I don't know. That's just the short list of college football innovators. Uh, you, 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 you really, for football, football coaches, you really got to you, you dig hard and deep to find liberal football coaches. I think Mike Holmgren is the one that comes to mind. Well, I don't know about that. Pete Carroll, I mean, in the NFL. I, 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 don't, I can't Pete come up Carroll with a list. Pete Carroll is another one. I, I can't come up with a list right now. I bet more than you would think. Okay. Many more than you would think. Um, Mike Tomlin, uh, Ron yeah. Rivera. Um, God, I can't think of I any don't know if, coaches. If, if these guys are. are I don't either. Role. I don't either. G- good point. I don't either. Um, anyway, it, it was it was a stupid thing to do. I don't know what the intent was, given his history. I think it was a little bit defiant and insensitive. I think he knew that he had the T-shirt on. He's taking a T-shirt with two of his sons after a fishing trip. Um, And I, I said this this morning, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think at a lot of universities, Tommy, in this environment, there would have been severe, you know, repercussions to what he did. You know, think about what we've talked about last week. You know, you can't even have an alternative opinion if you're in journalism right now without the threat of being fired and losing your job. Um, and this guy wore, I know it's a T-shirt. It's a T-shirt that would be reflective of somebody who right now isn't aware or doesn't care about what the country is going through and what people of color are protesting about not just people of color all people are protesting about i think if he had been at certain universities he would have been in big trouble yeah fortunately he did it at oklahoma state right 
where there was a a statement from the AD, I'm paraphrasing at this point, where he just said, uh, this afternoon's been a very disturbing afternoon, um, but I'm glad the two of them got together and, and got everything right. And Hubbard, after the video came out, said, don't get it twisted. My foot is still on the, on the gas on this. It's not over. I think what happened with Hubbard after this video is he took a pounding. Like, you know, he basically you know, was wishy-washy and didn't hold his coach more accountable. But so it's, I don't care. A month ago, I wouldn't have cared about my coach's politics at all. A month later, I think the one thing that I would have been concerned about before, even though I never thought about it, that now I would be aware of more now, and I would care, is I certainly wouldn't want one of my favorite coaches to be somebody who I thought intuitively that it wasn't just about politics. It was about a moral compass that lacked empathy and sensitivity towards you know serious issues or towards any group of people. That that, yeah. that that would bother me, even though I've always said about sports, I don't really give a shit about what people's beliefs are. This is a diversion for me. But if you know, I'm not saying that if I had if I had come to the conclusion about a favorite coach prior to the last couple of weeks, I wouldn't have felt the same way. I think I would just be more in tune of learning what someone's politics are and then taking it a step further to find out what kind of person they are. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it, I mean, one thing is, it, it's a slippery slope. Uh, the more you know about your heroes, sometimes it could be, or, or the people you root for, sometimes it could be pretty unnerving. You know, I, I wonder, I've often wondered, I wonder now, if, let's say, the, the, the baseball comes back and the Nationals come back, what will be the reaction to... Uh, Ryan Zimmerman Ryan, being a Trump supporter? Ryan Zimmerman, you know, saying those words at the White House. Thank you, Mr. President, for making this the safest country yeah. or the best country in the world for keeping us safe. Their little golf outing in, in uh, February uh, uh, down in, in West Palm Beach. Well, in this I environment, Ryan Zimmerman, if he, if, he, if he echoed the same sentiments, he would be called a racist. If yeah. he wasn't already by a lot of people. I mean, this is why I think... It wasn't Some just houses. Zimmerman, right, Tommy? There were a lot of other no, players. Well, there, there was uh, Kurt Suzuki put on the MAGA hat. Oh, right, hat. Kurt Suzuki trying to be funny, funny, jokey, put, yeah. put on the MAGA hat. Yeah, I forgot about, funny about that. about that right now. <laughs> so I, 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 I think that, I mean, I just assume, I don't think the reaction would be too good right, right now. Uh, and like I said at the time, it shouldn't surprise anyone that a lot of baseball players are Trump supporters because, you know, they're millionaires. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise. You know what's funny? I remember Jonathan Papelbon, who was, I was a horrible human being, I thought, but his teammates loved him. Let me point that out. Uh, Jonathan Papelbon's national teammates liked him a lot more than they liked Bryce Harper. Okay? So at the end, uh, at one point, I guess it was during 2016, when Papelbon was still on the team, uh, uh, pre-game, he puts on this song on the clubhouse uh, loudspeaker, the uh, audio system, uh, where it's a song that sings the praises of Donald Trump. 
And uh, he did it just to get a reaction from people who were in the clubhouse. The writers were there. He knew they were there. And uh, I remember looking at the Latin players, and uh, they looked really angry, you know, because this was the height of the when he was campaigning and talking about building the wall right. <clears throat> and keeping out, you know, uh, illegal immigrants. Uh, and it was such a bizarre scene. But I'm thinking there's a lot of people in that clubhouse that probably agreed with Jonathan Papelbon and, and, and were Trump supporters. Hey, by the way, I've got some good news for you today. Smile. I want you to smile. <laughs> I just... I, I, I just saw this because um, I had my TV on. And have you heard about this new drug proving to be the first uh, COVID-19 life-saving drug, dexamethasone? It's a steroid. Yeah. Like people, yeah, I've heard about People it. in all corners of the world and society, this doesn't appear to be a political response. No. This appears to be something legit. Am I right or not? Are you familiar with this? Because I've been working yes, all morning. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> and yes, I think you're right. Dexamethasone, okay. a cheap and widely used steroid, has become the first drug shown to be able to save lives among COVID-19 patients in what scientists hailed as a major breakthrough. You know, I'm beyond the save lives part now, though, because... Uh, I mean, one of the guys I follow is the guy from Harvard, the scientist from Harvard, Dr. Eric Ding, I think his name is. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm just as much concerned about long-term health damage, even if you do recover, uh, particularly to your lungs and uh, the damage there. I, I think that gets underplayed a little bit. But obviously, the first scare is death. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, re- how rosy recovery is either. Well, anyway, I mean, we don't know a lot about it, uh, and, but it seems like some good news yes, to end does. the show with. It's something to smile about is the smile, way I would baby. describe it. Um, all right. Have a good day. I'm done with you. I'll talk to you okay, on Thursday. Okay, I'll talk to you Thursday. All right, that's it for the day. Enjoy the day. Back tomorrow.